0: Do you have what it takes to lead the mothership to Higara? Well, let's find out with Homeworld this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here?
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 82 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. This week, we've got a really, really big show, really full show. Uh, and we are right at the edge of the Dawson pre-Windows XP era. We're like right around before Windows XP came out. So I'm really excited because we get to talk about some slightly more modern stuff. But uh, yeah, we've got a lot to do. Uh, it's getting cold. I'm going to Vegas in a few weeks, but uh, actually I'm going to Vegas this weekend. Woo! <laughs> so uh, you know what? Let's Let's get right to it. I'm not going to blather on because I've got a whole lot of blathering to do about the topic. So we've got some emails, as we tend to do. The first one comes from Jonathan, and Jonathan writes, Good evening, Joe. Uh, Yeah, it's almost evening. (laughs) Anyways, good evening, Joe. Was thrilled to see you do an episode on System Shock. Hopefully the recent release of the first one on GOG will spur more interest in the franchise. I remember reading about the second one in PC Gamer and ended up buying it in college from a local EB Games when it was in the sales rack, less than $5, but alas, I never actually fired it up and played it beyond the initial install. If memory serves, the game crashed right after starting it, and I never spent the time troubleshooting why. That being said, I snatched it up again when it was released on GOG, and it is again on my list of games to play. I'm also very much looking forward to your episode on Homeworld. This was another game I read about in PC Gamer and picked up at a local comp USA. I guess I date myself listening, uh, listing some of these defunct computer retailers. I think I made it through the fifth or sixth level before I gave it up. I would spend hours on these missions after losing the multiple times I moved on to something else. Although I never finished it, it did provide a lot of good gameplaying memories. Uh, it was also nice to see that the game has been revitalized and remastered by Gearbox, but it is too bad that it was signed as a Steam exclusive and isn't available on GOG. Hopefully the exclusivity isn't forever and uh, it will release to other online distributors soon. I was out mowing the lawn for the last time this year and have made it up to the first Tex Murphy episode. Though I played a lot of games covered on uh, the UMB cast, Wing Commander and the Tex Murphy franchises were quintessential gaming series from my DOS gaming days. For whatever reason, I loved FMV games from this era and those two series were the best ones I remember, though I can also remember some awful ones as well. Maybe you should devote an episode to just the most terrible FMV games of the time uh, for some comic relief. Actually, that might be a fun thing to do as a hangout. I think uh, the backseat designers have already done that, but uh, hey, it never hurts to do it again. Continuing on the gaming home front, I'm almost done with Monkey Island 1 and decided to get into Fallout afterwards. I was hoping to get Fallout loaded up on my Linux laptop using Wine, but alas, the performance on my machine made it unplayable. Fingers crossed, GOG. We'll devote some time to make it run on Linux more natively in the future. Heck, they went back and made the original Wasteland run in Linux. Why not Fallout? I even gave it a shot on my old Asus Transformer Infinity Android tablet using DOSBox Turbo, but again, my old hardware wasn't able to render a playable gaming experience due to lack of physical memory. I may get desperate enough to load it on my phone, which is newer and has more memory, but I don't know what the experience will be like on a small screen. I'm not on my desktop for long stretches of time, so if I get Fallout, it will take me quite a while to finish, months. Anyway, that is enough of me rambling for now. That and Sunday Night Football is on. Uh, I'll be on the road quite a bit in November, so that will give me time to catch up on more episodes. Happy Thanksgiving to you, though Wikipedia tells me Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving in October, and all the other blockers in the US. And there's a little PS here, Fallout update, I guess I just needed to write you an email, I installed a standalone DOSBox deployment on my laptop, and copied over the Android DOSBox modified version of fallout after some DOSBox config tweaking eureka fallout lives thank goodness for the open source community christmas came early well thank you so much jonathan and um yeah i was actually gonna say before you sent that little follow-up is i'm pretty sure there is a, a DOS box uh, a native DOSBox box for uh for linux so uh you know i guess you got it working so so that's good and um yeah actually on, on that front uh, my big news of this week is uh I did a dumb thing and bought a PS4. So I'm actually playing through uh through Fallout 4 myself. So you're playing through Fallout 1, I'm playing through Fallout 4. It is it's interesting how much of a Fallout game it actually is. I'll talk about I may or may not talk about Fallout 4. Um I guess we'll see. <laughs> but uh thanks for all of that. Thanks for the uh the little preview on uh on Homeworld. I li- I usually like putting emails that talk about the game that we're covering at the end of the show but this was only a small part of that one so that's why i threw it in the front so yeah great comments keep them coming and uh yep happy thanksgiving i had mine a while back but uh like i said i'm actually going to to vegas on thanksgiving weekend so uh i will be in the u.s
2: you're listening to the upper memory block
0: podcast time for
2: over
0: Okay, time to get to it. This time around, I'm talking about another list of shame game for me, Homeworld. Homeworld is a series of three games developed by Relic Entertainment and published by Sierra. Well, there's a little bit of confusion there, but we'll get to that. The first game, Homeworld, released late in the time frame of the show, like I said, in September of 1999. So let's talk genres. This is one I haven't hit in a while. Uh, Homeworld is a real time strategy game. Now, real time strategy or RTS games generally place the player in control of uh, some type of military organization. Uh, You tend to view the battlefield through a top down, sort of godlike overview, uh, which helps you to formulate strategies. You control your forces across this map to accomplish a set of of objectives. Uh, These could be as simple as destroying all enemies, capturing a specific facility or point, defense, or much more complex, multi-step, branching, story-driven objectives. It can all be very convoluted if you want it to be. Now, these units just don't come out of nowhere either. While each mission in a real-time strategy game tends to start with uh, some base allotment of units, you're also usually required to manage a base containing production facilities with which you can produce additional units and structures. This production aspect is funded via the gathering of resources. One or more of your available units are dedicated to harvesting said resources. Now, these harvesters then deliver gathered raw materials to a processing facility, where they're usually converted into some form of currency for your use. Now, of course, your base is usually a sitting duck for enemy attacks, so funds need to be expended on base defenses as well as offensive units. On top of production facilities, you can spend money on research and upgrades to your existing units and in some cases even intelligence on uh, enemy movements. Now, the thing that makes real-time strategy games different from more traditional tabletop style turn-based games is that all this action happens live. As you build up your base and your army, the enemy's doing the same thing. So you have to manage everything at once, production, defense, and especially control of your units to accomplish your objective. All these aspects of the game need to be balanced and dealt with simultaneously. Your offensive units might be attacking an enemy position while the enemy's looped around and is assaulting your base. Uh, you know, you may be taking losses, so make sure you've got more units in the queue for production. RTS games can get really hectic. Now, that's a basic definition of the genre. With this in mind, let's get on to Homeworld. Well, it is a traditional RTS in many ways, it also differs, so you know, let's see. Okay, the story. Uh, not really sure how to get into this. Now this game has story in spades. Luckily, I happen to have a boxed copy of Homeworld that I won in a giveaway. So when I decided to cover this game, I actually opened the box to see what's inside or what was inside. What was there really made me smile. There's a manual in here that's half game instructions and half backstory. And the game's intro gives us a very good overview of, uh,
1: of the world. One hundred years ago, a satellite detected an object under the sands of the great desert. An expedition was sent. An ancient starship buried in the sand. Deep inside the ruin was a single stone that would change the course of our history forever. On the stone was etched a galactic map and a single word more ancient than the clans themselves. Higara. Clans were united and a massive colony ship was designed. Construction would take 60 years. It would demand new technologies, new industries, and new sacrifices. The greatest of these was made by the scientist Karen Sujet, who had herself permanently integrated into the colony ship as its living core. She is now Fleet Command. The promise of the Guidestone united the entire population. Every mind became focused on the true origin of our people every effort on the construction of the ship that would seek it out among the stars.
0: So, this is a pretty effective summary of uh, what was laid out in amazing and actually somewhat compelling detail in the manual. Karak is an arid desert world. The Kushan, live on this world. Since Karak is fairly inhospitable, the Kushan live mostly at the poles of the planet where it's coolest. Now, the manual goes into detail about the societal structure of the Kushan and the backstories of each of the clans, also known as uh, the Kithid, or individually a kith. but uh, suffice it to say that the history of the Kushan is not a calm and peaceful one. Given the scarcity of good arable land on Karak... Uh, the clans are constantly warring over the best bits of territory. Now, this was the case until about 100 years before the events of the game. One Keith launched a satellite meant to look outward to scan space. Instead, it malfunctioned and scanned the surface of the planet. Um, This revealed the remains of a large city surrounding what appeared to be the crash site of an ancient ship. Explorers were dispatched to investigate the area. Once there, they'd discover a wealth of advanced technology, the most impressive of which was a hyperdrive module. Now, in addition to technology, the explorers found something even more important. A piece of rock upon which was etched a map of the galaxy, which showed a path from Karak to a place called Hegara, which in the Kushan language translates to our home. Now, all through their history, Kushan scientists had theorized that their race did not and could not originate on a world as inhospitable as Karak. However, no evidence could be found to support this claim. Now, this stone, which would soon be dubbed the Guidestone, was this proof. It would capture the hopes and the imaginations of the entire race, Ancient differences were put aside, and the clans would unite in an effort to discover more about this world, and uh, they would start to mount a massive operation to find it and eventually colonize it. Now, this meant a massive effort in technological research, in training, and in production on an unheard of scale. Now, it took you know, about 180 to 100 years of coordinated effort. But the end result was the mothership, which itself took 60 years to construct. This was a mass- massive ship that would take 600,000 cryogenically frozen colonists from Karak to Higara. The hyperdrive module, uh, which was found on the ancient ship, which was christened the Kartoba, was reverse engineered and installed on the mothership. It also sported facilities for resource collection and production, which would be mandatory to complete the long and potentially perilous journey to Higara. So as we head into the intro, one major problem was encountered, which could have scuttled the entire project. We touch on it a little in the intro, but uh, you know, Kushan computer technology was not at a level where it would be able to handle the massive amount of raw processing power that was needed to manage all the various operational needs of the mothership and its associated fleet. Well, one neuroscientist, Karen Segette of the Keith Segette, which was a clan that focuses mainly on scientific research and development, had an idea. She'd been working on a cybernetic interface, uh, allowing a biological brain to control electronic subsystems. There was one problem, though. At that moment, the only way to get this interface to work was to directly wire it into a living brain, effectively tethering the subject to the physical interface. Karen volunteered to undergo the procedure herself. After some debate, it was basically found that this was the only way to get the project moving and to make things work. So, as we heard, Karen is now known as Fleet Command, uh, the intelligence which controls all the operations of the mothership. So, ten years out from the scheduled completion of the mothership, a research vessel— named the Selim, was also launched. Now, this ship would spend the next 10 years traveling to the outer reaches of the Karak star system in order to serve as a target for the mothership's first hyperdrive test and also to render any final assistance to the mothership before it embarks on its journey. So, here we are. It's 100 years after the guidestone is found, 60 years after construction of the mothership has begun, and the mothership is docked with its construction scaffold, in orbit of Karak, and it's time to get the show on the road. As we begin the game itself, the mothership is ready to undergo that final hyperdrive test.
2: You are listening to the Upper Henry
1: This is Fleet Command. Reporting mothership pre-launch status. Command online. Resourcing online. Construction online. Cryogenic subsections A through J online. K through S online. Scaffold control, stand by for alignment. Alignment confirmed. Stand by, release control. Near the scaffold, we are away. Stand by for command line testing.
0: So as the mothership launches, we're put in control. So this is as good a place as any, I figure, to uh, to discuss gameplay. Now, despite the fact that the game has a very detailed and actually somewhat tedious tutorial that uh, you can do before you launch into the campaign, uh, the initial mission is a bit of an in-universe tutorial, kind of reinforcing things. Uh, Here you learn about controlling your units, gathering resources, and some special abilities of uh, some of your early ships. Now, in a lot of ways, this is, like I said, a very traditional RTS. Uh, the mothership is your base, and uh, well, in theory it's mobile, it doesn't actually ever move during a mission in the game. Uh, like any other RTS, you need to defend your base and accomplish your objectives by building out an army, or in this case, a fleet. Uh, you do this in the traditional manner via collecting resources. The resource concept in this game isn't entirely creative uh your units are responsible for resource collection are called resource collectors resource collectors and uh and yes you can have many of them venture out into dust clouds and asteroid fields where they mine resources what those resources are eh, we don't really get told it's like minerals and stuff uh, they're delivered either back to the mothership directly or to another unit called a resource col- controller uh, resource controllers are remote drop-off points for your collectors so if you're mining far across the map you know they don't need to make the long and potentially dangerous trek back to the mothership to uh, to drop off their bounty. So these resources are used to make a fairly wide variety of ships. Uh, we start off with uh, fighters. Now these small one-man ships are relatively inexpensive and operate best in groups. Uh, their main advantage as you know, you may assume is a speed and maneuverability, which allows them to effectively avoid uh, the slow tracking of you know, large, uh, large capital ships and super capital ships that ha- you know mount turrets. And the turrets, if the fighters are faster than the turrets, they won't get shot. Uh, you know, small scouts boast very light weapons and armor. Interceptors are heavier, multi-purpose ships that uh, tend to form the backbone of your fighter core, while bombers are optimized for assaulting larger craft. Uh, Finally, there are Defenders, which are special units that are dedicated to fleet defense. Uh, They're not very maneuverable, but they do boast a lot of firepower for their small size. Next up from fighters, we have uh, Corvettes. Now, these ships are sort of the missing link between fighters and capital ships. You know, they tend to have multiple crew. They tend to mount turreted weapons. They're slower and more heavily armed than their smaller fighter cousins, uh, but they also have a larger range of, uh, of sizes and capabilities. Now, some corvettes exist for support, such as the salvage or the repair corvettes. Uh, anti-fighter corvettes serve as amazing escorts for larger, more valuable vessels. And mine layers can set up defensive mine belts to discourage enemies from, uh, from approaching. Next up, we have... Uh, so those are actually classified... The fighters and the corvettes are classified as strike craft. And next up, we have another classification of capital ship. This is the domain of uh, frigates and cruisers. Now, frigates are bigger and better armed than corvettes, uh, and they even mount their own hyperdrives, so uh, they don't need to dock with a larger ship when it comes time to move to another system. Much like corvettes, though, frigates fill both support and attack roles. Uh, Much of the same can be said for cruisers. These large and expensive ships are dwarfed only by the mothership. Uh, you know They have heavy armor, heavy weapons, and uh, boast docking facilities for smaller ships. Once docked, uh, small strike craft like uh, corvettes and, uh, and fighters can refuel and rearm before heading back out into the fight. So once we tool around a little bit and we finish our mini-tutorial, the mothership and our small fleet make their first jump to test out the, uh, the mothership's new hyperdrive. This is where the support ship Karselim that we just talked about comes into play. Like I said, it's spent the past 10 years making its way out to meet up with us. So we jump, and the game moves on from there. I'm not going to say any more than that, because if there's one thing this game has in spades, it's twists and turns and a very compelling story, so I do not want to mess it up for anyone. Uh, as you progress through the campaign, 16 missions, you'll see a pattern emerge. You'll make a hyperspace jump out of your current mission and, uh, and then you'll watch a cutscene. Uh, the game's cutscenes were sort of a cool black and white comic style with a voiceover from either Fleet Command, who we've already talked about, or Fleet Intelligence, another disembodied voice who gives you info and tactical updates kind of throughout the game. Now, one thing that is a huge win for this game is its user interface. Uh, the first thing you'll notice is that the game's UI is incredibly minimal. Unlike a more traditional RTS, where you have a bottom third which has maps and toolbars and unit status windows and buttons on the top of the screen and all that, Homeworld dispenses with all of this. Uh, I believe the game was originally designed to top out at 1024 by 768, but you can go higher than that, uh, up to 1600 by 1200, I believe. Um, when you go that big, the UI gets pretty unreadable. But uh, you know, I think I played at 1280 by 1024. And, um, you know, the UI just really stays out of your way when you move your mouse to the bottom of the screen, a taskbar style control pops up sort of like if you hide your taskbar in windows and from this taskbar, you can do a couple of things. Firstly, you can access your long range sensors. Now this zooms out to a computerized tactical overview of the current system. Uh, From here, you can control all of your units just as you can from the more cinematic view. It's a great tool to see where everyone is and what they're doing. You know, From here, you can also do the other thing that makes Homeworld truly unique. Now, in most real-time strategy games, you command units across a land-based battlefield. You have impassable obstacles, mountains, passes, blah, 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 but overall, you are fighting on a flat surface. Well, in Homeworld, we're in freaking space. So, guess what you can do? you can fight in the Z-axis. So, you know, to move your units, you select them and press M. This enters movement mode. Movement mode displays kind of a flat circle around your units, and, uh, you know, and that will move them around in the current plane. Pressing shift, though, and moving the mouse lets you change the elevation of that circle. This three-dimensional freedom of movement can be a huge help If and only if your brain can figure out how to use it. I mean, imagine like a pincer attack with multiple groups of ships attacking not only from both sides, but from above and below. Like kind of this crazy claw thing. Like how freaking cool is that? As you move your groups of ships around, you can also give them different formations. These formations have an effect on how much firepower can be brought to bear on a target at once. Uh, the ideal formation will change depending on who you're attacking and what you're attacking with. Uh, the claw formation is great for groups of small ships surrounding a larger one. Uh, parade line isn't incredibly useful, but you know, maybe for capital ships, the wall kind of brings everything to bear at once. The sphere formation is another one that's good for small ships to surround a single target, uh, Though that one sacrifices a little bit of maneuverability. I mean, there's a lot of really cool options here. And in this first game, these formations do actually matter. Also, unlike my general strategy in, you know, command and conquer and stuff, it's recommended to create mixed groups of units, especially as you get into the more expensive ships. You basically need to create small flotillas with heavier ships at the core, and lighter point defense type ships at the outside of the formation to uh, you know defending against attackers. It's actually really cool. Uh, you know the scale of battles in Homeworld is just off the charts. I mean, there's a lot of ships on the screen at once, and you can see a lot of action happening right in front of you. You can also zoom in ridiculously close to a single unit and watch the action at a micro scale. Uh, the graphics and physics work is just superb, and you know frankly, I could just watch this game unroll in front of me, even if it just played itself. I would just watch it, and you know you're not st- stuck, of course, with the ships that you've got. Uh, you know, one or more having one or more research ships allows you to develop new technology throughout the game. Uh, that research functionality is also accessed via that pop-up taskbar. This is how you research new ships and blah 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 to progress your uh, technology tree. I mean, there's a lot more to say about gameplay in homeworld one the last very important aspect of the game is uh the concept of a persistent fleet so as you progress through the game you know like say you're playing command and conquer you're playing warcraft or something you start a new mission you have whatever initial set of troops they give you for that mission and then you make more homeworld doesn't have that homeworld has a persistent fleet because you are this group and you are making your journey to uh Higara, your your home whatever and um you know, you don't have a place where you can rearm and refuel. It's just what you've got. So as you move from one system to the next, whatever units you finished the last mission with, those are the units that are going to jump into the next system with you and be available at the start of the next mission. So that's another pretty cool aspect of things. So, you know, suffice it to say that all the details aside, the large-scale space fleet combat is superb. It's immensely cinematic. The only real gripe I have about the gameplay is, And uh, the combat UI is that at times there's a lot going on and uh, I do find it difficult to select units since there's basically a cloud of little ships fighting around me. I do like grouping my guys into control groups and as you're creating new units, they immediately enter combat. So, you know, they come out of the the production facility and they start fighting if the stuff's like if the fight is right around the mothership. So it's tough to see who's assigned to a group and who isn't. It's a pretty small gripe, but I got to say something bad, right? So, the campaign can be played either as the, the canonical Kushan race or as the main antagonist, the Taidan. Um, really, the only difference here is uh, the look of the ships and one or two special units. It's more of just a, a replayability thing to play through the game with different-looking ships. The campaign is exactly the same no matter who you choose. So, you know, the official story is that you're supposed to play the Kushan, but if you do play the Taidan, then uh, same characters, same voices, same everything. So, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm probably going to say this a lot, but ships in this game and the combat that they engage in, you know, it feel, it's very kinetic... The big ships feel big, the small ships feel small. I'm not sure if it's thanks to the physics engine, thanks to the animation, thanks to the art, or some combination of all that stuff, but these do really feel like real ships doing real things, and I think that's actually a pretty impressive feat. Uh, there is, of course, also a multiplayer component to the game, which uh, which used Sierra's One WON service. Uh, players could deathmatch each other with a variety of options, you know, research, no research, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, that was a lot of fun as well.
2: You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
0: time for the tech focus. So since we're into the very late 90s, we're getting to some beefier system requirements than we're used to talking about. This or There's no XTs or ATs here. According to the bottom of the boxed Game of the Year edition that I have in front of me right now, to play Homeworld, you need at least a Pentium 2 233 megahertz. On this Pentium 2, you needed at least 32 megs of RAM, windows 95 or 98 and 100 megs of hard drive space in addition to another 50 megs free for the windows swap file to kind of do its thing now since we talk about dos a lot i don't generally get the chance to talk about the guts of windows and uh i know some of you like it when I tangent a little bit here so uh so i will the swap file let's talk about the swap file the swap file is an important part of windows even today in windows 8 windows 10 though uh, it's starting to get a little bit less relevant as we start getting into you know 16 and 32 gigs of available system RAM. The swap file basically acts as a buffer for your computer's system RAM. So, say we're in the era of this game and we have 32 megs of RAM. Let's also assume that you've got a few programs running, eh, including Homeworld, and, and those programs are using 30 of your 32 megs of RAM. Now, let's assume that you do something in the game that requires you to load three more megs of data into memory. Say, you know, you start a new mission. Well, now you need 33 megs of RAM, but you've only got 32. This is where the swap file comes in. So Windows knows the state of each of the running programs and exactly how they are using available memory. It also knows which pages in the memory are being used the least. So memory is stored in, there's, you know, an entire memory space, there's blocks of memory, and those blocks of memory are separated into different pages, which are like, you know, groups of blocks of memory. So the Windows memory manager knows how those pages are being used, and it also knows which ones are being used the least, say from one of your programs being minimized and not really doing anything except maintaining its state. So to free up system RAM without forcing programs to close, the least used memory pages are used or are or used, are moved from the RAM itself into the swap file which is stored on your computer's hard drive. This creates an uninterrupted multitasking experience. However, there is a cost to it. Getting data to and from the hard drive is orders of magnitude slower than you know playing around just in the RAM. If disk paging happens every so often, it's not really a big deal. You know, say a minimized program, you open it up. Sometimes if it takes some time to kind of display itself to pop up, Properly, that usually means that uh, you know Windows is restoring the memory stored in the page file into RAM. However, if you're very low on RAM, the computer's gonna swap RAM pages in and out constantly. You know, you're gonna hear your hard drive churning if you don't have an SSD, and uh, and the system's gonna grind to you know a very clunky and not very usable, not necessarily a halt, but it's gonna be slow as crap. I mean, you may experience this even today. You know, say you got a bunch of Chrome or Firefox tabs open, and some of them are chewing up, you know, a whole whack of memory of the eight gigs that you've got. Uh, the slowdown there that I'm sure we've all experienced is the constant paging of RAM uh, to and from the disk. So, enough about swap files. Um, graphics and sound-wise, you needed a DirectPlay-compatible sound device and a four-meg PCI graphics card to make Homeworld run. Now, those requirements were enough to you know, get the game running, but it wasn't very playable. In fact, it wasn't playable at all. To experience things as they were meant to be experienced required a beefier Pentium II 350 megahertz, 64 megs of RAM, and a graphics card with 12 megs of video RAM or more. On top of this, if your card supported 3D acceleration via direct 3D or OpenGL, then things looked really great. 3 3DFX Glide was not supported at all. For multiplayer, a dial-up connection with at least a 28.8 megabit per second, or sorry, kilobit per second KBPS modem was required megabit. 28 megabit would not be bad. (laughs) So I'm not going to talk that much about the engine. Basically, the game was built on a completely custom engine known simply as the Homeworld Engine. Uh, The source code for this engine was open-sourced by Relic in 2003, so if you want to go... Messing around with it, you can still go get it today. Now, much like story, music is something that Homeworld has in spades. The game's music was composed by Paul Ruske. Uh We'll get into this in more detail in the dev story, but Paul graduated from Vancouver Community College in Vancouver, BC, and uh, he soon got a job at Radical Entertainment as a composer and sound designer. Uh, he didn't stay there for very long, as we'll soon see, uh, he left and founded Studio X Labs, which is an independent sound studio and uh, a music production firm. Uh, Homeworld was the studio's first project. Now, the music of Homeworld is unique to this day. I think in the realm of RTS games, you know, well, games like you know Warcraft and things like that use a full orchestral score. Command and Conquer and more contemporarily set games use more like kind of rock industrial type of a thing. Homeworld changes things up by sticking to an amazing ambient electronic score with heavy influences from Middle Eastern music, uh, at least for me, and this is not saying that people from the Middle East are aliens, but the music has you know a familiar yet alien quality to it. You know The people we're supposed to care about in this game are aliens, at least insofar as they are not from Earth. We're not really meant to see them that way. I think we're meant to see them as human. The music works towards that, you know, kind of in making me at least feel like we're off in the far reaches of space, but it also creates a sense of familiarity by using specific themes and things. It's, it's, it's like a masterwork. This is a great soundtrack and, uh, you know, I've got it on CD and I've been listening to it and it's amazing.
1: You're
2: listening to the upper memory block podcast time for
1: development
0: okay dev story time now right off the bat i am gonna say this it was tough to find information on the development of the first game the team at relic they've done some interviews but they were mostly marketing focused type things like the game has these features and it's gonna be great and you should buy it a lot of dev stuff out there is about the remaster, which you know I'm going to chat about it a little bit later. But we're not going to go into tons of detail there. I have to give a huge shout out to my buddy Brian, the space game junkie, for an interview he did with the devs of uh, of the second game, Homeworld Cataclysm, which actually did provide a good amount of insight into uh, the first game. Uh, if any of you are into space games, you definitely need to check him out, the space game junkie. So kudos aside, Homeworld was the first release from uh, a company known as Relic Entertainment. Relic was founded in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I I spent a few weeks during the summer, and uh, it was founded by Alex Garden. Now, Alex was a bright kid. He's always into computers. Uh, In high school, he opted to take quite a few computer science courses, and in one of those courses, he met a guy named Aaron Daly. Like I said, Alex was a smart kid who was great with computers, so at times... The uh, probably somewhat clueless high school computer teacher would just let him teach the class. Aaron, though, he just loved computer games. Uh, He and Alex became fast friends, uh, you know, as you tend to do in high school. And uh, they'd go to Aaron's house after school and play games on his Amiga. In their last year of high school, or at least in their senior year of high school, I assume that's the last one, Alex's family moved back to the province of Manitoba from uh, whence they came, I guess, and the two friends lost touch. A few years later, Aaron was attending the University of British Columbia, and uh, he had a job as a security guard, I guess I assume to pay some rent and keep him in beer money. Uh, on a one-off job at a new apartment complex, lo and behold, he ran into his old friend Alex. He and his girlfriend had returned from the wastes of Manitoba, and uh, Alex had taken a job at Radical Entertainment, where he was working on some PlayStation games. Uh, they reconnected, and within a year, Aaron was also working at Radical as a level designer. Now, by this time, Alex had moved on to a, to a job at EA, but uh, he actually had designs for something else. Now, Alex, much like myself, was a huge Star Wars fan. In a, di- in, a, in a discussion with some friends, he came to the realization that no current space games captured the visceral action and epic scale of the space battles he grew up loving. You know, like the two Death Star battles from Star Wars, Viper versus Raider dogfights from Battlestar Galactica, stuff like that, you know. This was going to be the impetus for his new game, which he would eventually call Homeworld. His basic idea was for a space game that took inspiration from the story of the original Battlestar Galactica TV series. You've got a ragtag fugitive fleet embarking on a long journey uh, that they are ill-prepared for, while well being hounded by a superior and better organized enemy force. He shopped this idea around internally at EA and... Uh, He didn't get any bites. Uh, The game he was proposing was was a risk, and the big studios were decidedly, and still are to this day, decidedly risk-averse. He realized that the only way he'd be able to make this game would be to strike out on his own. He immediately called his friend Aaron, who became the first employee of his new company, Relic Entertainment. Now, the small group of founding members, including uh, Alex Aaron, artist Rob Cunningham, and designer Quinn Duffy— probably among others, got together over a weekend and hashed out the framework of the story. Now, they realized that uh, to manage the scale of the battles they wanted, they couldn't really do like a space sim X-Wing versus TIE Fighter kind of a thing. They probably had to take more of a tactical RTS route. And the team was also insistent that this, this, since this game took place in space... The action had to occur in three dimensions. This was another kicker. How are you going to do that? I mean, they felt that Star Wars Galactica and, you know, those the games based around those kind of World War II dogfighting style of space combat that that George Lucas made so popular in Star Wars severely lacked the feeling of actually being in space. It felt more like you were flying a plane at night and there was no ground around. So instead of focusing the action or the view around, you know, out of cockpit or around controls on a single ship or something like that, you were placed outside of the action with a free moving camera that you could focus on any unit with full 3D rotation and zooming. So you could zoom out far to see an overview of the action, or you could zoom in so tight that you could read the decals on your fighter's hulls. Now, the concept of the sensor manager replicated the sensor panels you'd see, you know, kind of in uh, Echo Base in Star Wars and which are actually based on these display, these panel things that are around in the combat information centers of modern day aircraft carriers. Uh, You know, units could be controlled at a macro level from this view, kind of moving groups of units from place to place over long distances. And then when you got down into it, you could move into the uh, cinematic view and fight your ships. Additionally, As we've said, each unit could be controlled in the vertical axis. Players that could get their hands around this concept would be at a huge advantage over those who could only think two-dimensionally. Think Star Trek II in the Mutara Nebula. You know, uh, Khan is in the Reliant, and he's flying around thinking two-dimensionally. Kirk makes the ship go down, and hey, (laughs) you can't find him anymore. And, you know, space games didn't, especially these kind of more RTS-style space games, didn't really have this concept, at least not in this much detail. So after quite a bit of development effort, the team at Relic had an amazingly advanced RTS game engine, beautiful ship designs inspired by the works of British sci-fi artists Chris Foss and Peter Elson, and they had also come to a publishing deal with our friends at Sierra. So they had an engine, they had a multiplayer deathmatch module, and they had a series of single-player missions using all this stuff. What they didn't really have, though, was a solid story to kind of tie all this stuff together. Yeah, they had the concept of the Galactica-style journey, and they had names for their races and some events, but Sierra wanted more. They wanted more story, they wanted more background, so they added writers late in the project who came up with the uh, full and detailed backstory of the different clans, and uh, they made some changes to the ordering and the detail of the single-player campaign to make it flow better. It's thanks to this decision by Sierra, which I'm actually surprised they made— that we have this rich world for the game to exist in, this rich backstory in the manual, this concept of these clans and all this stuff—it was came from the publisher. So, as we already mentioned, the game's music and sound was designed and composed by Paul Rusky, who uh, also worked at Radical Entertainment with the rest of the group. He split off to form his own studio with Homeland as the first project. Uh, the game contained five hours of audio and. It only shipped on a single CD, which, you know, 650 megs, and it could only hold, if you want to put them in raw audio, it held, what, 70 minutes? It's not enough. So uh, custom compression routines had to be written to fit it all in. Homeworld released in September of 1999 to Stellar Reviews, handily winning Game of the Year for that year. Now, recall that late 1999 was kind of the twilight years of Sierra as a standalone company, and by this time management decisions were decidedly reactionary shall we say at least that's what people say uh it seems that nobody thought or nobody put the time in to think about it and realize that homeworld might actually sell well well hey when it did an expansion was immediately ordered we need an expansion someone make an expansion a uh, relic was approached but they were already gearing up to work on their next game fictional creatures and Frankly, they weren't very interested in retreading old ground. Like, we did that. It's the old engine. We want to do new stuff. Uh, they were slated contractually, I believe, to work on any official sequels, but, you know, they were happy to let what effectively amounted to a mission pack fall to someone else. Eh. So Barking Dog Studios were contracted to do the expansion. However, as sales for the original game continued to rise, Sierra changed the project scope from an expansion to a full standalone game. And this was not cool with Relic. Sierra, you know, there was there's a bit of conflict here between Relic Sierra and Barking Dog. Relic demanded that any standalone sequel was part of their contract and they would be the only ones to work on it. That is, you know, it's too bad, we're going to send our lawyers, blah 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 blah. As a compromise, Sierra said, "You know what? Cataclysm will release a standalone game, but it will be referred to as a standalone expansion. Also, the story of the game would not include any of the major story elements from the main game no fleet command no mothership and the story could leave no lasting effect on the game universe
1: the war for higara has left the galaxy in turmoil the past 15 years have seen the birth of new possibilities and the festering of old grudges the once-dominant Taidan Empire has fractured under the strain of civil war. The new Taidani Republic tries to hold the old territories together, while forces loyal to the old emperor lurk in the new banded kingdoms, waiting for their chance to strike back. While the Taidani struggle between past and future, the Kushan people have established themselves on Higara, Building new cities, repairing the damage done by the final battle for their home world. Even a fragile peace has its politics. The Kith Council has been re-established. And the future of Higara is now debated amongst the gathered Kithsa. Even amongst equals, there are power struggles. The mothership still orbits high above Higara. Pressed into the role of shipyard, she now builds new carriers to the specifications of each individual kith. The need for new ships and the crews to man them is a desperate one. Military and economic pressure on the new Higarans is intense. Resources and technology are at the command of the Council. with little or no political power, have been forced to purchase technology from the Bentuzi and other races. Higaran ships of exotic design now seek their fortune amongst the stars. The war for homeworld is over now, but the galaxy remains a dangerous place.
0: So Barking Dog agreed to all these limitations and developed what effectively amounts to a side story happening in the Homeworld universe. It's 15 years after the events of the first game. Uh, spoiler for the first game, the fleet makes it to Higara and settles the planet. Woo. Uh, you, you begin the game in command of a mining ship and, uh, you, Carry on on that ship through the whole game, but eventually you do take control of a full fleet led by carriers against uh, ships and crews captured and controlled by techno-organic microbots known as the Beast. While Cataclysm was built on the same engine as Homeworld One, the team at Barking Dog dig add some enhancements. Uh, time compression was added, which could kick the game up to eight times eight x speed and. Uh, the concept of individual ship upgrades were introduced. Uh, carriers and other capital ships could mount modules for research and support, and uh, the concept for, of uh, fuel for strike craft was completely eliminated since, uh, frankly, it was more annoying than it was fun. Also, your command ship, this mining ship, has the ability to move unlike the mothership in the first game. It also mounts some impressive weaponry uh, if you can get it in posi- into position because it does actually, it moves, but it is slow. The main difference between Cataclysm and the original game, though, is really one of scale. While Homeworld emphasized huge fleets of ships, Cataclysm focused on uh, smaller groups and smaller scale engagements. So, despite all the brouhaha around the expansion, Cataclysm released, it was good, and Relic would get their shot at a sequel in 2003.
1: Core was found. With it came the gift of interstellar travel, and the Outer Rim trade routes were established, uniting the galaxy in peace. second core was discovered on a desert planet is the story of the end time. We know this because the third core has been found. Under the dark influence of this core, the Taidan have risen under a new leader, a vaguer warrior lord named Makan. He calls himself the Sedgkar, the Chosen One systems have already fallen under his shadow and his eyes are set upon the again deep inside the great derelict at tanis construction of a new mothership is underway the pride of vigara once more the exiles will face the coming darkness so in homeworld 2 the Hegarans
0: are faced with a new enemy, the Vager. It turns out that the hyperspace core that was located by the Hagarans at the start of Homeworld 1 is only one of three in the galaxy. A race known as the Bentusi have the second one, and the third is found by the warlord leader of the Vager. With it powering their own flagship, they embark on a mission of conquest, commencing an invasion of Hegara at almost the same time that this new mothership, named the Pride of Hegara is being commissioned. Let's just say that Hagara isn't in for a good time and we're sorta gonna repeat some of the events of the first game here. Homeworld 2 is built on yet another new engine and changes up gameplay a reasonable amount. Uh, The capabilities of ships on both sides are now quite different and some aspects of gameplay such as fuel and group tactical formations were dropped. Uh, The UI was improved even more and uh, even more functionality was added. Well, the game sold and reviewed very, very, very well—nines on tens and all those things. It didn't quite reach the level of critical acclaim that the first game did. It's kind of this, you know, continual uh, <laughs> debate as to whether or not the first game or the second game is is better. I will leave that for all of you guys to uh, argue about. So, where does that leave us today? Well, Relic was purchased by THQ in 2004, uh, and Sierra kept the rights to Homeworld. That stayed the way it was until about 2007, and in 2007, THQ did purchase the rights to the game. However, they didn't really say anything about actually creating a new game in the series. Rumors abounded until about 2013. 2013 when THQ hit financial trouble and uh, the the big THQ IP liquidation occurred. And this is when Gearbox got hold of the IP and began work on Homeworld 1 and 2 HD, which would eventually be renamed the Homeworld Remastered Collection. Uh, It was quite the challenge and feat to take the old code, get it buildable, and get the game up and running... And frankly, there's enough info in there, just in that little creation of the remasters of Homeworld 1 and 2, for another entire show. And you know what? Getting down and dirty into like little bug fixes and compiler versions and all that stuff really does tick my program tickle my programmer bones. Maybe I will do a show on one of on that one of these days, just talking about how they did it. The coolest part about this whole thing is that they actually received support from a company called Blackbird Interactive, where uh Quite a few of the original Homeworld de- home developers ended up. So you basically have the guys from Gearbox and the guys from Blackbird working, the guys from Blackbird working on a game they worked on, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, just uh, more than, yeah, about 15 years ago, coming back and, and seeing they're all, God, I can't imagine. I got to go back and look at code I did 10 years ago. I can only, woof, must have been pretty awful. So the big takeaway from all of this is that a full HD remaster of Homeworld 1 and 2, which supports resolutions of up to 4K, exist. Both games have been ported to an updated Homeworld 2 engine, so some aspects of gameplay in Homeworld 1, such as, again, fuel and ship formations, don't exist. So if you're looking for the pure experience, the collection does come with the original games dubbed Homeworld 1 and 2 Classic. Suspiciously missing is Homeworld Cataclysm. Now, the company line from Gearbox is that the original source for Cataclysm was lost. However, in that interview over at Space Game Junkie, uh, the Barking Dog team, now uh, known as Kerberos Interactive, say that the audio and visual access uh, assets, at least, do exist, and even if the base game code is gone, the game was based on the Homeworld 1 engine, so... They couldn't see why it wouldn't be possible to implement the updated Homeworld Two engine used in the remasters on, uh, you know, some updated assets from Cataclysm. Further to these remasters, which are already out and available, the guys at Blackbird Interactive are working on a game that they were originally calling Hardware Shipbreakers. This was going to be uh, their new game in the spirit of Homeworld, which they started work on in 2010. However. Once Gearbox got the Homeworld IP, they got together. They ran through kind of a, a test build and you know where they, where they were at and what they were planning to do. And um, they agreed that they would bring Shipbreakers into the fold and make it a prequel to the first Homeworld and rename it Homeworld Shipbreakers. Now, this is going to be a different kind of game. It's going to delve back into the detailed backstory outlined in the game manual of Homeworld 1, and it's not going to take place in space. It's going to be in the sands of Karak.
2: You're listening to the Upper Henry Block Podcast.
0: So, you can grab... The Homeworld Remastered Collection on Steam and on Steam only. This is a Steam exclusive, people. And uh, so that's the remasters of the first two games and the original versions of those games as well for $34.99 USD of uh, the Steam Winter Sales coming up. So keep your eyes on discounts.
1: Hi, I'm the Space Quest Historian. And I want you to listen to the Upper Memory Block podcast because I say so.
0: Okay. So, as usual, before we get to my verdict, we've got a few emails and a voicemail. First one comes from Robert, and he writes, Hi again, Joe. I saw that you're covering Homeworld next, and coincidentally, I recently bought the Homeworld Remastered set. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it, as my interest in the game quickly dwindled after playing for a few hours. As with most classics that I didn't play upon their original release, and and that I don't end up liking now, I can definitely see how this was an awesome game for its time, But for me, the depth is lacking. Basically, every mission I send my miners out to go mine, then I just start building ships, paper-rock-scissors style, and tell them to attack. I do, however, think it's cool how you keep all your ships from previous missions. This, along with the way the story is set up, really makes me care about the lives of those I send into battle, and I probably can't say that for any other RTS out there. Aside from that, though, I just feel like the missions are very repetitive, at least as far as I've gotten, which is the fifth or sixth level of the game. Additionally, the AI doesn't seem reliable. Sometimes my guys will know just what to do. Sometimes I have to tell them and then they get the hint. And sometimes they seem to not really care what I tell them at all. It's also pretty tough to find certain units in the midst of a battle to tell them to focus down this or that enemy. But I guess that's what control groups are for. I'd like to hear your thoughts on these criticisms if you haven't addressed them already in your podcast. Also, I just listened to your SimCity episode, Funny Story. When I was little uh, and the original SimCity came out, I was not allowed to buy it. Yes, you heard me right. However, it wasn't because of fears of content or anything like that. Nope, I was not allowed to buy SimCity because my dad was convinced that the game was actual city planning software for the SNES. I wanted to play this game so bad, but every time we went to the store and I picked it out, he would say, no, Robert, that's not a game and I could not convince him otherwise. After months of this scenario, I finally got the chance to play it at a friend's house, and after I told him I did so, that was enough to convince him that real-life city planners don't perform their jobs on freaking Super Nintendo. So I got the game and sunk many hours into it, and later into SC2000 as well. This is all especially strange because my dad was never in any way a Luddite. In fact, He was always an early adopter of new technology in general. We had PCs since the days of DOS, and we even spent a lot of time playing games together, both PC and console. But then again, my dad always was and still is a bit of an absent-minded professor, and for whatever reason, he had this huge block when it came to figuring that out. Yes, SimCity is indeed a game. It's too bad that the most recent SimCity turned out to be such a flop. Luckily, City Skylines has somewhat filled the gap, but no city building simulator has ever grabbed me as much as the original SimCity and SimCity 2000. Damn, I just thought about one more story about SimCity if you're not too tired of this email already. Whenever I played the first game, this message would occasionally pop up that you probably remember. Brownouts, build another power plant. Well, since there was no punctuation as far as I can recall in this message, I always thought the game was telling me that some people or a company named the brownouts had built a power plant for me. And I also thought it was very kind of them, but I never could figure out who they were or why they were helping me. Sorry for the long email. Still loving the show. Keep up the good work, Robert Ring. Ring. Well, thank you, Robert. And <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I guess I've, I've sort of addressed those, those issues in, uh, the selecting of ships and all that. I had the same problems. Uh, do the missions get repetitive as you go through, you know, at least the first part of the game? Yeah, yeah, they do, but I guess that whether whether you enjoy it or not depends on you. The, the, the action can be a bit slow at times, which is probably why they brought the time compression in in Cataclysm, but uh yeah, I guess we'll see what I think about the game in a little bit, and as for SimCity, SimCity 2000, yeah, SimCity 2000 for sure is the one I spent the most time with, and... I will still fondly go back and play it over any other SimCity. I think it really did. I think I even say it in that show, which is like three years ago now. SimCity 2000 really did find the, the correct balance, I think, between complexity and simplicity where you, know, you don't have to try too hard to do well, but it's challenging enough and there's enough options to keep you interested. So thanks for that. Next, we have an email from my friend Martin. And... He writes, I love Homeworld. Joe, I love Homeworld. It's been a while since I've been able to email your show about a game I have played personally, so this is a pretty big treat for me in a big way. Homeworld is a game I stumbled upon by accident. When I was younger, I lived in an isolated part of Texas with no technology enthusiasts around me. The only news I got about upcoming games were from my Nintendo Power subscription and what little exposure to computer games I received while visiting my dad. So, games like Red Alert, StarCraft, and X-Wing were always under my radar until, blammo, they were at a friend's house or my dad's. Homeworld is one of these games. I got a small taste of 3D RTS games with Star Wars Force Commander and became obsessed with what you could accomplish with such a novel concept. I spent much of middle school developing my own 3D RTS using spaceships and bases and always thought to myself how unique my ideas were. Then, one fateful visit to my cousin in 2003 changed everything. Not only had someone beat me to the chase, there was already a sequel to that game. I wasn't too upset about it, though, as Homeworld 1 and 2 blew me away. I was sucked into the lore and presentation. When Karak burns in the opening moments of the game, I was mortified. And when, for some reason, and for some reason, it galvanized me to beat the odds and find my Homeworld. I hadn't felt like that since I saw Kane kill Seth in Command & Conquer, The ending credits to Homeworld 1 is one of my all-time favorite, and Yes's song still haunts my earworm. Homeworld 2, if I remember properly, was one of the first games to introduce squads into RTS games. Everything about Homeworld 1 I can say the same for Homeworld 2. My only gripe is just how many features and ideas were cut for Homeworld 2 due to to its somewhat turbulent dev time and its short single-player. As the years went on, I stopped playing Homeworld 1 and 2 and focused on its amazing mod scene, including the very cool Warlord Star Wars mod. I followed the uh, very dramatic happenings during the increased silence on Homeworld 3 and its many IP purchases. It's nice to see it come full circle and return to the hands of Blackbird and their prequel game Shipbreakers. I'm glad you finally get to play Homeworld 1 and 2 on an easier setup than what most people have to go through. Uh, The re-release is a blessing and a curse with its content, but overall, it's a great deal. I can't believe you, of all people, never played it, and I hope you like it. P.S. X-Wing gave me the line, you must register to play around with. Homeworld gave me and my cousins mothership to annoy each other in multiplayer games. Well, thank you, Martin. And um, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I didn't play this game. It's just silly. It's totally up my alley though I might have skipped it because I wasn't a huge RTS guy, especially around 99. Like I was playing Starcraft and yeah, you know, yeah, 98, but I didn't really get into kind of more of them than that. I was kind of a CNC and then I moved into Blizzard and I didn't really go outside of those RTSs. It wasn't really my favorite genre. So maybe that's what turned me off, but eh, who knows? Next, we have a voicemail from Greg. So take it away, Greg.
2: Hello, Joe, and fellow blockers. This is Greg, aka SoBlazer, uh, here to talk about just, just like that last episode, another one of my favorite PC games. Um, I am the host of Super NES Podcast because Super NES is one of my most favorite chartered consoles. But I also spend a lot of time, like playing, just like playing computer games over the years, and like System Shock, Homeworld is another one that I have a lot of affection for. Um, I am not a huge RTS fan. Uh, there are some games I've enjoyed like over the years and some series that I always check out. Uh, Command and Conquer, for particular is a favorite of mine, partly because that the original CNC was the very first cd-ROM game I ever got like my computer uh, circa 1995. Um, I've also I've also like, really enjoyed the Warcraft and the Starcraft games. But I think the genre is is, more, is pretty tired and worn out. There's a lot of Me Too games and whatnot in there. So when I had some friends tell me back in 1999 about this new space-based RTS game called Homeworld from Sierra, one of my all-time favorite PC uh, uh, gaming companies, um, I thought it looked promising enough. Uh, like Joe, I'm a huge science fiction fan, particularly with Star Trek and Star Wars, and looking at some of the pictures and descriptions about the game, the fact how they praised the ability to be able to go in three directions uh, to really be able to have like true 3D space and combat in this game really impressed me uh, because again, a limitation uh, a limitation that's frustrated me over the years, I think of Star Trek and Star Wars is they don't tend to use that Z plane of access very much, that 3D really aspect. A lot of combat still done in a traditional 2D plane or very close to it. So, um, getting the game and doing the first missions I was hooked right away partly because of the fact that this game was indeed a true 3D space-based game you actually felt like that you were actually like in space able to move around like in all three directions you really had a sense of scope and purpose the graphics were very impressive like the time period, and the music was awesome really like really flipping in the scene the story was interesting engaging very well done some very nice plot twists uh, combat was not that easy to 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 get the hang of and besides the true 3 d effect, I really loved the wide variety of ships that you can have in the in the game there's also multiple ways to be able to approach each mission you can approach a mission probably no less than six ways to be able to win it. Uh, just through a combination of whatever methods feel like is best to you and in trying to figure out the best way to be able to defeat the enemy and to win that mission. And uh, there are chances later on in the game to be able to kind of I don't want to say cheat, but to be able to kind of fudge things in your favor a little bit if you run into problems. Uh, there's one mission toward the end of the game, uh, the Infinite Bridges side mission, where you have to destroy a, uh, I believe it's a, a space station protected by a huge circle of enemy ships, hundreds of them. And if you need ships and you're patient enough, you can just simply send your scavengers out and just simply t- capture ships and haul them away back to your mothership to reprogram them and do that over and over and over again, you literally have hundreds of ships, and that makes the last few missions of the game a cakewalk. Um, so there's multiple ways to be able to do There's multiple ways to be able to approach the missions, and I love that creativity. Uh, the game has a lot of staying power. It's like a very unique, fun game. So they certainly, certainly gave the RTS genre a really badly needed shot in the arm at that time period. Um, I actually enjoyed the sequel, ca- ca- Cataclysm, even more than Homeworld. Cataclysm was built off the same engine as Homeworld, so it really wasn't doing doing anything too groundbreaking. But the story was even more interesting and engaging in that one. Uh, the voice acting was even better. There was really a very uh, a, like some really challenging missions, uh, so it was a much more much more difficult game than Homeworld was. And being able to approach either from the Kushan or like the Beast, particularly particularly multiplayer mode, was really like a a, a lot of fun. Great, great game. If you're a fan of Homeworld, I highly recommend checking out Cataclysm. It's too bad Cataclysm has not gotten a remake, a remake 2 like Homeworld recently did on Steam. I want to check out the remake of Homeworld, but I was told to use the Homeworld 2 engine, which which I'm not as big of a fan of. So I'm probably just going to wait for that one to go on sale before I check it out. Speaking of Homeworld Two, I bought that game when it first came out, and I like it. I just think it's the weakest—the weakest of the trilogy. Uh, I'm not—I'm not a not big of a fan of the of, of the engine for that game, or some of the changes changes that they made. It felt more like a traditional RTS. Some of the real. Space genre, open uh, open creativity for doing missions, uh, 3D effects that made the first two games so great, kind of felt cut back or not really improved upon in Homeworld 2, so I didn't enjoy the game as much, but I did beat it, and it's still a decent game, if you're Homeworld fan. Um, Recently, there was a Kickstarter. I'm sure Joe's going to talk about this. Where a company was trying to get the rights to buy the Homeworld franchise that was snapped up by somebody else. Um, I can't remember who got the rights to Homeworld 3. I'm sure Joe will let us know. But I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so, I hope, but like, so this is a, this is this is probably one of my. Favorite RTS series next to Command and Conquer. Uh, these games are great if you're a space fan at, at all. It's definitely worth checking it out. Like I said, I've yet to. It took a long time for me to play a game that I really felt like utilized three D in space as well as like as well as this game did. Definitely holds up very well today, and it's a blast to play, uh, whether it's original original form, uh, like the like the Homeworld remastered version on Steam. So, Joe, thanks again for th- th- thank you again for covering for covering the, the like, one of my all time favorite like favorite PC games, um, and I really highly encourage anybody who's not played this game yet to give it a look. I think it holds up very well today. Thank you very much, all, and take care.
0: Okay. Verdict time. Well, you may have already guessed given a bit of my tone throughout this episode, but I honestly think that these games are incredible masterpieces of game design and art and music and everything. I mean, they just they all work so well together. I mean, I'd heard about these games forever and I knew they were high on my list of shame and that I'd probably like them, but I had no idea As you likely know, after three years, I'm a big sci-fi fan, a huge Star Wars fan, Star Trek fan. I automatically enjoy most things related to space. These games capture the epicness of Space Fleet combat like no other game I've ever played really has. I mean, the music, the graphics, the design, even in the original games, forget about the remaster, They're beautiful. The first game from 1999, which is, you know, 15, 16 years old now, is beautiful. This is one of those games where I actually forget to interact with the UI because I'm just watching it. I'm watching the battle occur. The 3D combat is very cool, though my kind of simple brain does forget about it most of the time. Either that or I use, I go, oh, the enemies are up there. Let me go up. And then I forget about it once combat is joined. If your brain does work in three dimensions, if you can train yourself to think that way, you can do some really interesting things. Again, from almost every aspect, story, visuals, audio, UI, this series is awesome. I won't lie, I mean, I didn't have an easy time playing. The game isn't particularly easy. Even in the early missions, if you start falling behind, it's tough to get caught up again. The only negative things I have to say about it really are, are these. One, at times, yes, the combat can be a little slow. That doesn't bother me a lot because it kind of adds to that realism of this is how combat would really be in space. There would be a lot of traveling to meet the enemy, a lot of spinning around and you know, dogfight kind of stuff that does take a bit more time than just, you know, one blast and the bad guys are dead. Like I said, and like others have said, I do find that selecting units in the middle of a fight is very hard to do, especially if you're building reinforcements on the fly. I thought that that was just me, but if other people are saying it, well, maybe it's not just me. And also, finally... You can go on YouTube and watch. I played into the first, into the fourth mission of the original version of Homeworld One, the one that comes with the the uh, the remaster collection. That's supposed to be, though it's the original code, supposed to be modified and optimized to run on modern systems. The fourth mission just kept crashing on me, and uh, this wasn't just a cute little crash. It was boom, full hard crash to desktop. I'm sure there's some tweaks I can do, but I wanted to see it again from a different perspective. So I just rolled over to the remaster and played it there and uh you know, again differences in the gameplay, but uh I like playing games for story, so honestly it didn't bother me all that much. So yeah, if you like RTS games, if you like any combination of space, beautiful graphics, wonderful ambient music, clever UI, I mean play these games. Do it, do it, do it. Just do it.
2: You're
1: listening to the Upper
0: Okay, so that's it. Long one this time. Thanks to everyone for mailing in, and uh, this time around, thanks to everyone who helped me find sources. It is so surprising to me that such a popular game has so little written about its development. Next time, everyone's going to get excited. I'll be heading back to LucasArts with some Indiana Jones. I'm definitely going to touch Fate of Atlantis, and unless someone has a compelling reason for me not to... I'll likely talk about The Last Crusade adventure game as well. It's going to give me an opportunity to actually play it because I never have, and I've got it in my Steam library, so hey, why the hell not? As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for all his great audio work. You can find his stuff at MoyerMultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can give a little over at patreon.com slash UMBCast. If you find some value from the show, please consider donating a buck or two uh, to help me with the costs of uh, doing all this stuff and to hit the next goal of weekly Let's Plays. I'm having fun with videos, but uh, if we get there, I'm going to schedule a day and it's going to go boom, 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 and there's going to be stuff every week. You can check out the show notes for this show and all the other shows at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on YouTube, like I just said, at youtube.com slash umbcast. Uh, I've got a few videos, I think, actually in the queue of a bit more homeworld than what's already up there right now. So I'm going to hopefully get those up shortly. Uh, You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is that. And we will see you next time for Indiana Jones in various forms here in the Upper Memory Block.
1: Battle control terminated.
0: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast
2: with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at
1: umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here?
2: Join.